This is FSRN, the weekly edition. I'm Nell Abram. Coming up on this week's show, French voters go to the polls this weekend, where shooting on the Champs-Élysées may add electoral momentum to nationalist Marine Le Pen. In Turkey, lawmakers extend a nationwide state of emergency after a contested referendum to rewrite the country's constitution. And on South Dakota's Pine Ridge Reservation, a Lakota immersion class works to recover lost language while strengthening culture. Those stories and more on FSRN's Weekly Edition. As voters in France gear up for the first round of presidential elections this weekend, a gunman opened fire on police in Paris Thursday. One officer died, two others were injured, and the gunman was shot and killed as he tried to flee the scene on the city's storied Champs-Élysées. The incident that French President François Hollande said appeared to be an act of terrorism is adding fuel to the nationalist fire that's thrust the country's far right-wing party to the top of the polls just days ahead of the vote. The election in the country that's both a NATO partner and a permanent member of the UN Security Council is the latest ballot box test for an international surge in right-wing nationalism, which has seen recent wins in the UK, Hungary, and Poland. And as with the 2016 U.S. election that brought Donald Trump to power, analysts in France claim that Russia is interfering in the political process. Candidates once considered part of the extremist fringe are now riding a wave into the political mainstream and possibly into France's highest office. FSRN's Khalid Sid Mohand reports from Paris. The long-dominant center-right and center-left parties in France are eclipsed in this election by three formerly French candidates, Marine Le Pen of the far-right Front National Party, the radical-left Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and the new face on the political landscape, Emmanuel Macron. Macron served as the Minister of Economy in the socialist government of François Hollande. The former executive at the Rothschild Bank graduated from the prestigious National School of Administration. His popularity has grown within a political vacuum created by the disaffection of right-wing party voters, les Républicains, whose candidate is engulfed in a corruption scandal, and the socialist party of the current and deeply unpopular President François Hollande. But how could Macron, only 39 years old and with no political platform when he declared his presidential ambitions, climb so high in the polls? Mariana Menza, one of Macron's spokespeople, says it's cross-party appeal. I wouldn't say he didn't have any program. He had uh, lots of uh, new ideas. Uh, He wanted to provoke and to create a change in the society. That everyone, all together, you can be from left or right side or from center. Your main goal and your aim all together is to, to generate a progress in the society. Journalist Nadia Sweeney works at the weekly newspaper Politis 
and has attended most of Macron's rallies. Il n'a pas d'idées réelles. He doesn't really have ideas. It's quite empty. We listen to his speeches. They're long sentences without real content. But he has succeeded in selling himself like a yogurt with a whole marketing plan. He sent teams into the streets. But unlike his rivals, they conducted market studies with a questionnaire and then used the results to adjust his speeches at local rallies. The shifting political ecosystem in France is also shaped by corruption in the country. Philippe Pro is a history teacher at an anti-corruption rally. He said he was shocked by what foreign media has dubbed Penelope Gate, a scandal involving the wife of the center-right candidate François Fillon. Pro explains the effect these scandals have not only on his pupils, but also their parents. We try to teach them the Republican values. We tell them that the Republic is the best political system. We tell them about liberty, equality, and brotherhood. But it's been hard to fulfill our task these days because children talk about it, the scandals. They say that they are all rotten and all corrupted. As France continues to struggle with an influx of refugees, Right-wing nationalism is on the rise, and many see candidate Marine Le Pen as an emergency exit. What would happen if, under Merkel's pressure, one of her protégés, Macron or Fillon, continues to accept millions of migrants? Your neighborhood, your village, your children's school, your life, your wages will inevitably be impacted by immigration. I, as a president, will put borders back in place the first day in office. The leader of the National Front has intensified her recent speeches to consolidate her electoral base, and her popularity has skyrocketed. But what explains the spectacular rise of the far-right party? Marwan Mohamed, director of the Collective Against Islamophobia in France, says it's their ability to record racism against Arabs and blacks into anti-Muslim rhetoric, which in France is more publicly acceptable. Islamophobia in its political form has been able to capitalize on concepts uh, that have a positive connotation in France. For example, the concept of laïcité or uh, women's rights or even freedom of expression, they have been taken away from their initial meaning and recoded into a form of exclusion. So for example, laïcité, would describe the state church separation and it has been reinterpreted, recoded into a form of uh, religious censorship. From the other side of the spectrum comes Jean-Luc Mélenchon, a radical left candidate and former member of the Socialist Party who launched his own movement known as Insubordinate France or La France Insoumise. John Mullen is a French-British national who has lived in France for more than 20 years. Mullen is a professor at Rouen University and is an active member of the movement. Well, he does have some resemblances to the ideas of Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn. And he's running for this election on a, a very radical program of, uh, you know, of, um, full employment, uh, 100% uh, organic agriculture, 100% renewable energy, really saying it's time to completely change the way the economy works. Unlike the fascists in Italy and the Nazis in Germany, far-right ideology here lies in the history of the French colonial empire, and more specifically in its loss. Historian Françoise Vergès worries about the chances that Marine Le Pen might win the second round of the election and secure the presidential post. 
Aimé Césaire in 1956 talked about the boomerang effect, the fact that colonialism will come back to you. And uh, colonial history re-enters the French imagination through migration and the migrants as the enemy, as the internal enemy. So we could have a Trump moment in France, flattering, you know, the, the worst feeling, but flattering the fact that the other is your enemy. And polls suggest this could happen. The far-right National Front's Marine Le Pen is currently holding the lead just days ahead of the first round this Sunday. Khaled Sidmohand, FSRN, Paris. While France may well be on the path to placing another ultra-nationalist on the world's slate of global leaders, pro-democracy groups in Turkey are challenging the outcome of a recent referendum on constitutional reforms. If enacted, the reforms would dramatically alter Turkey's parliamentary system and reduce checks and balances in the country located smack dab between the Syrian civil war and the EU refugee crisis. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan claimed a razor-thin win by a 2.8% margin. But despite widespread allegations of ballot fraud, the country's electoral commission has refused to annul the results. FSRN's Fariba Nawa is based in Istanbul and explains how the changes would restructure the government and consolidate power in the office of the president. So now there will not be a prime minister. That role has been abolished. Parliament will have increased seats, but it will lose leverage on decision-making. One decision that Parliament can make uh, that it couldn't before is the right to impeach the president, but that's not going to be an easy task, knowing how uh, grand Erdogan is in in the eyes of his supporters. Some Some of the people worship him. They see him as almost like a god here. The vote comes less than a year after a failed coup attempt against President Erdogan, who received emergency powers in its wake. Those powers gave a legal veneer to an ideological purge in which about 140,000 academics, journalists, police, and members of the judiciary, along with other civil servants, were either jailed or fired from their jobs. Monday, even as opponents were appealing the initial results, President Donald Trump called Erdogan to congratulate him on the outcome. The final results, because of this dispute about fraud, have not been announced. They should be announced in the next week. The election board said that because of these issues in the opposition, they would uh, come out in the next 10 to 12 days. That was right after uh, the the election, the the vote was uh, finished. Uh, But still, President Trump congratulating President Erdogan um, before the result, the final results are announced is a little premature, some people think, especially the no voters. And the yes voters love Trump because Trump and Erdogan have a lot in common in how the, you know, in terms of their populism. Protesters took to the streets this week saying the future of Turkey's Republican system is at stake. Dozens were arrested and lawmakers quickly extended the state of emergency in place since the coup attempt for another 90 days. We now go to Brazil, which is dealing with its own collective crisis. In 2016, an impeachment, which many likened to a legislative coup, forced the leftist president, Dilma Rousseff, from office. Now, the biggest political corruption scandal in memory continues to unravel as the country tries to dig itself out of its worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. 
The current Michel Temer-led government seized the opportunity to push through austerity reforms, which have frozen public spending for the next 20 years. Now, Congress is debating an overhaul of the country's pension and social security systems. If approved, the reform would slash benefits and raise the retirement age for federal employees. Michael Fox has more from Brazil. It's a chilly April evening in southern Brazil. Roughly two dozen public employees are gathered in the capital of the state of Santa Catarina to discuss how the country's proposed pension and social security reform could affect them. They're upbeat, but nervous, if not for themselves, then for their co-workers. That's the case for 55-year-old Anderson Loreiro. He's been paying into Brazil's social security system for 36 years, and he's looking to retire, which he can. But if the proposed reform had been in place when he began as a social worker in 1981, he would still have another decade left on the job and a smaller pension to expect at the end. This could be the new reality across Brazil for those who enter the workforce, and many already in it. A lot of people that started working 20 years ago had an idea of what it would be like when they got to a certain age. And in the middle of the road, the government is changing the rules. What do you do? I have a son who's 25 years old. Well, he's never going to retire. The reform will affect millions of public sector workers, and labor unions fear it could lead the way to a piecemeal overhaul of state and local pensions across the country. The reform is part of a larger government push to roll back the progressive gains achieved under the Workers' Party that was ripped from office last year in what many here regard as a legislative coup. The ensuing assault on Brazilian labor rights isn't like anything seen in decades. Even during the dictatorship, they took away our right to expression and freedom of speech and the two-party system. But the attacks against the working class and workers' rights over labor law were not as intense as they are today. Yes, they took away many rights, but not like today. That's Ana Julia Rodriguez, the president of the state chapter of Brazil's largest labor federation, the CUCH, which has been mobilizing to push back. Last month, more than a million people marched against the reform in cities across the country. The organizing seems to be paying off. Shortly after the March protests, President Michel Temer announced that the reform would only apply to federal employees, and more concessions have been promised in a move to win over the public and reluctant legislators. Although Brazil's conservative Congress is largely in sync with President Temer, pension reform has proved to be complicated. The legislation is unpopular and Temer's approval rating has fallen to only 10 percent. But powerful proponents are pushing for the reform. Artur Maia is the congressional representative in charge of the legislation. He says that future workers won't be able to cover the cost of retirees and that regulations are necessary to save the system from disaster. It's an argument that may sound familiar in many countries where Social Security reform has come up. But unlike in the U.S., the retirement age in Brazil is significantly younger due to a much lower life expectancy. People today retire very early, at age 50 or 55, and they receive their retirement for longer. Sometimes then they even contributed to the system. Naturally, Social Security can't continue like this. But according to lawyer Luis Fernando Silva, there's plenty of evidence that the current system is more than sustainable. He's an advisor to the federal public employees union Sintrafesc, and he believes the reform is actually a move to gut pensions enough so that workers look for other options. 
Então essa mudança toda é para This whole reform is just to incentivize privatization without calling it privatization. It doesn't mention the issue of privatization. Instead, it naturally pushes people away. People are going to migrate into the private sector. Regardless, labor is readying for the fight. Nine central labor unions are calling for a national strike on April 28th, which they hope will send a strong message to Brasilia. If it is successful, it will be the largest nationwide labor protest in Brazil since 1996. A vote on the reform is expected within the next six weeks. Michael Fox, FSRN, Florianópolis, Brazil. Catholic school on the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota has introduced its first Lakota language immersion program. A small kindergarten class is the start of a revolving door immersion concept that will see students remain in a culturally rich environment through the fourth grade. Jim Kent visited the Red Cloud Indian School to talk with the Lakota language teacher and her young students about the importance of retaining a language to preserve a culture. The Red Cloud Indian School is nestled within the rolling hills of western South Dakota and lies just a few miles north of the village of Pine Ridge. Founded in 1888 as the Holy Rosary Mission, its bucolic setting belies the history that saw Lakota children spend half their day taking classes while spending the other half performing domestic duties such as kitchen work and farming to keep the mission operating. While Catholicism flourished in the early part of the 20th century, many Lakota families chose to send their children to Holy Rosary instead of the federal government's boarding schools. But no matter which institutions they were a part of, the process of assimilating Native children into the dominant non-Native society resulted in a loss of their language. Savannah Grasseth is one of the teachers at the Red Cloud Indian School's Lakota Kindergarten Immersion class. She says although her students have attended a daycare immersion program starting as young as 18 months old, most come from an environment where Lakota isn't spoken. When they come over to the daycare, most of them do not come from Lakota-speaking families. So the children that are here now a lot of the parents are learning alongside the, the children with classes that our program offers. We do have one little boy, his grandparents are fluent speakers. But, but that little boy is the exception. And though the Lakota immersion class only has five students, the ratio for non-speaking tribal members is much higher than reflected by these numbers. In a population of some 40,000 on the Pine Ridge Reservation, it's estimated there are only about 6,000 fluent Lakota speakers. As a result, this immersion class, like the daycare school the students have already attended, concentrates on speaking all Lakota all the time. The results are most readily seen when children from the immersion class associate with their non-Lakota-speaking counterparts at Red Cloud, says Graseth. 
So it's really interesting being here because we, we do a lot of the same activities with them. So we'll go to gym with them, we'll go to arts, library, different things. And so we'll be with that other classroom. But as teachers, we don't, we don't break our Lakota with our kids. And it's interesting because the other children, they really like intently listen. They really, well, I know what that means too, and they get excited. And though Gresseth makes a point to use words from the children's culture and even their home life when instructing them in subjects like basic math, changing times have brought challenges to her job. Like robots. We had a book about robots, Maswi Chasha. And so the kids, you know, they get really excited because they're familiar with the subject, but it's also um, interesting because the the fluent speakers will say, well, you know, what's a good way of describing this? That's when the Lakota linguistics expert will meet with the natural native speaker to come up with a new word for a centuries-old language. Of course, teaching Lakota isn't just about a traditional language keeping pace with the modern world. It's about the Lakota culture's survival into the new millennium, since the culture and the language are inexorably linked. Red Cloud Executive Vice President Robert Braveheart Sr. explains. You can't teach the language without teaching the culture. And you can't teach the culture without teaching the language. And our elders tell us when you lose your language, you lose your culture. So they, they, they go hand in hand. And so we try to do that. You know, you just can't teach the language in a vacuum, just as a language itself. To that end, the five and six-year-old students in the Red Cloud Immersion Kindergarten class are taught the traditional way to introduce themselves in Lakota. Okay. Now you're done. Now, what did you say? Uh, my name is, and my mom and my dad, and my sister and my brother. Perhaps the most telling aspect of the immersion school's effects was the unwillingness or inability for the young students to easily shift back to speaking in English when I asked them to translate what they'd said in Lakota. But that's a good problem to have, observes Robert Braveheart Sr., considering the history of Native American children in boarding schools being punished for speaking their traditional languages. Jim Kent, FSRN, at the Red Cloud Indian School. Hear the phrase green walls, and you might think perhaps the southern border wall proposed by the Trump administration is taking on an eco-friendly theme. But these green walls are going up in Seattle's South Park and are designed to clean the air and reduce air pollution. And many members of the immigrant community are putting up the walls themselves. Martha Baskin has our story. Beneath handcrafted green wall panels on the site of a public library, youth in Seattle's South Park immigrant community plant honeysuckle, jasmine, and clematis. Soon their leafy vines will climb metal cables welded onto the panels. 
When fully grown, the green walls will filter particulates and help clean the air in a neighborhood dominated by highways, air traffic, and industry. We're doing a green wall because in South Park, we think that there's a lot of pollution. Wooden Meyer is a local high school student. So we're trying to help put our hand in and help out with that. Asthma rates for young people here are double compared to the rest of Seattle. Life expectancy is also 13 years lower, so the community came together to find solutions. Planting trees was the first solution. Trees are carbon storage experts. 700 have been planted over the last year and a half. The second was to build green walls. Paulina Lopez is an organizer with the Duwamish Community Action for Clean Air, which launched the Green Wall Project. Green walls are walls that we need. Lopez refers to community members learning about the walls for the first time. When we have been telling them about the walls, they just hear the walls and then they are like thinking, what are you talking about? And they have been saying, these are the only walls that we want. We need more green walls. The South Park Merchant Association has agreed to build more green walls, and talks are underway with the Port of Seattle, whose trucks run through the neighborhood for a bigger project. The historically industrial neighborhood of South Park has long dealt with environmental hazards never fully remedied, including a river, the Duwamish, filled with legacy toxins and storm runoff, Puget Sound's most persistent clean water challenge, but after a report highlighted the area's cumulative health impacts, air quality became a priority. Lynn Gould, with Just Health Action, authored the report and was on hand to help with planting the first green wall. You can work on air quality upstream, you know, by like changing emission standards, but how do you work on air quality from the community where they have this opportunity to take action? Initial support came from the EPA's Environmental Justice Cooperative Problem-Solving Agreement. Then, the county's Wastewater Treatment Division stepped in with a green grant and the Seattle Parks Foundation. But you put green walls where you can't put trees. You know, you put them in places that are unique, where other things can't happen. A clinical instructor at the University of Washington School of Public Health, Gould says a key ingredient to improving health is self-confidence and social cohesion. When you think you can do something together, it actually improves your health. And so here are these kids, they see what they can do for the community, and they want to do it elsewhere. They want to make a difference. The youth are done planting. Now high schooler Hodan Meyer and her friend Natividad tie the vines of a honeysuckle around the slender cables of the handcrafted green wall panels. Yeah, we're um, tying it around so they don't fall, because if they fall, they're not going to be able to grow like we want them to grow. With fresh mulch for nutrients and water retention and Seattle's ever-present rain, that likely won't be a problem. Greenwall project manager Andrew Schiffer says the concept was to merge public art with public good. Artists and welders donated their time. The site chosen for installation of the community's first green wall, a public library across from a highway, already had a depiction of the Duwamish River on the ground. So we wanted to add into that and become part of that. Schiffer points to raindrops suspended from metal cables. So we have the raindrops falling down on the metal cutout panels, and then the plants help the water to evapotranspirate to go back up and evaporate. Evapotranspirate, a rarely used word about the way plants and trees move water into the atmosphere, sounds right for an equally rare public health project. 
the installation of seven green wall panels may seem symbolic, but a granular approach is what it takes to integrate green growing things into existing hardscapes, says Sean Watts with the Seattle Parks Foundation. These are not luxuries. These are add-ons that you do if you've got the funding. This kind of amenity needs to be core to creating the livable city that we want to see in the future. For South Park, the future is now, with green walls made from climbing honeysuckle, jasmine, and clematis. Martha Baskin, FSRN, Seattle. Before we go, we have an important announcement. After 17 years of bringing you stories from the ground from all over the world, FSRN is shutting down permanently for financial reasons. We'd like to sincerely thank all of the individuals and stations who supported our work over the years and honor the reporters who go out into the field working to bring about a more just and equitable society. We'll publish our final program on April 28th. And that does it for this week's show. Shannon Young provides editorial services from Oaxaca, Mexico. Roe Packard provides technical support from WTJU in Charlottesville, Virginia. Music in today's show is by Putsasal via gemendo.com. From Tampa, Florida, I'm Nell Abram. Thanks for listening.